Well, well, well. We are on uh, week five of a series that I'm falling more and more in love with. I don't know what that says about me. I think I, I, it's, I didn't write the stuff, so it's not that. It's not like I love my books or something. But I'm, I'm, the more I study David, the more I'm just getting giddy. And some of you are like, Jesse, you might need to calm down a little bit. But it's just, it's just what it is. We're, we're in this series called David, Heart Flaws and All, because David is a guy who's like you and me. He's a guy who wants to follow the Lord and, and has some history of doing that, but he also has some baggage and some problems and some obstacles that seem to get in the way, and you're a real person, David's a real person, maybe we can learn about real people together. And so I, I've just been so thankful for how the, the, the conversations coming out of this have, have landed, um, and, and just seeing, you know, as, as we talk it's, it's weird to think about, like one of the heroes of the Bible grew up in a home that had, at least for a period of time, uh, some significant domestic violence. We talked about that last week, that, that he grew up that way. And, and for those of you who grew up that way, it's like, oh, I see that. I, I remember that feeling. I know what that's like. And so uh, we're, we're just, we're going to keep trucking through David. Today, um, we, we're going to enter into a period of time where David's life is in absolute chaos. Um, we're going to enter into a period of time, it's about a 10 year period, by the way, uh, where there's an entire decade where uh, up is down, down is up. Those who he trusted, he doesn't know if he can trust anymore. Everything is just chaotic. And if you've ever entered into a season like that, where it was good one day, and then you entered into a month long where I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm not getting any sleep. I have anxiety attacks. I, I don't know. Like if you've entered into that season before, um, you're going to see some of that in David. You're going to be like, I remember. I remember what that's like. And so we'll we'll truck through that uh, together. But let's let's kind of recap where we've begun because all of this is not written as myth or allegory. It's written as history. It's intended for you and I to to like know like oh these are these are real people with real places with real. Uh, uh, situations. And so we begin uh, at 1052 BC. Our boy Saul, you may recall, uh, he becomes king around the age of, of 30. And uh, he, he does okay at first, but then, then he sort of uh, starts compensating for his lack of following the Lord with religious-sounding things. He ends up just fighting a lot of people, uh, puts the whole kingdom into chaos, puts the whole kingdom into war with everybody around him, just at odds with the entire neighborhood. Uh, and eventually, after many, many warnings, uh, the prophet Samuel says to Saul, hey, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. The Lord is going to rip the kingdom from your hands. He's going to give it to someone better. Boom, take that. Then the next week, uh, we see King David. He's anointed a, a king around 1025 BC. So we've got almost 30 years uh, of, of you know, Saul doing kingy things. But around age 15, David is anointed as king. He's announced. Uh, he, him and his family knows he's going to be the next king. And he enters into uh, what is a really slow time of his faith because it, it's really boring when you're in the in-between moments. He has, uh, if you fast forward, uh, it's going to be 15 years before he's king. For 15 years, David has been anointed king, but not yet king. And we're going to see some of that time here in just a moment, but just think about how long that is. Think about you know, how, how impatient we get when we feel like the Lord has, has promised victory in this job, and we've waited 10 whole days, and we're just like, when's the Lord going to bring victory? David waited 15 years. 
and was patiently faithful to his God in that in-between moment. Patiently faithful to what everything that he knew God has called him to. And he, he is a great example of what it's like to just be in the middle of just, I don't know when the next shoe's going to fall, uh, moments of life. I, I, love, I love David uh, for that. And of course, the most famous story of David is that he defeats that giant. He defeats the giant around age 20 in about 1020 B.C. Uh, he de- defeats Goliath, and as you recall, uh, beats him with a stick and a stone, and then uses Goliath's own sword, the sword's going to come up in a moment, uh, his own sword to cut his head off. Ka-chow! Grabs his head, has a conversation. There were sound effects in the Bible, I'm sure of it. Uh, that's how I remember it anyway. Uh, and, and he announces to the king, hey, um, you know, uh, I, got the, I got the problem taken care of. I, I, got, I got rid of him. And as you may remember last week, we, we picked up right when he finished telling the king that, and the king refused to let him leave from that day forward. He could no longer go back to his dad. Essentially adopted him, essentially conscripted him into a, 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 almost a, like a, a, a political vehicle of war. He's a champion, but he's also a winner, so like put him everywhere, make sure he's on the newspaper. I've got David on my side. Uh, but David, he, he loses some, some control, some, some autonomy in his life. And the more success that David had, the more Saul grew in, not anger, but he grew in fear. Every time the scripture gives the inner dialogue of Saul, it's not anger, it's fear. And then fear looks like anger as he applies it, because Saul tried to kill David, as you remember, three times. He threw that spear at David, and David, he's, he's gone. He's out. I've got, to, I've got to get out of this house. What we're going to do today is uh, we're going to cover the next uh, almost 10 years of, of David's life. Uh, because from the moment he leaves Saul's house, that third time, you may remember uh, he, he was, he, his wife like snuck him out the back window of the house, right? From that moment, he's 10 years away from becoming king. He's 10 years away from Saul uh, dying in battle. Uh, spoiler alert, it's 3,000 years old. You should have watched the movie by now. Uh, and and it, he, he's, he's a decade away from that moment. For the next 10 years of David's life, roughly, depending on how long that spear-throwing incident occurred, even if that lasted two years, for the next eight to 10 years, David is running for his life. And he's scared. He doesn't know who to trust. Um, He's separated from his family. He's separated from his wife. His wife ends up marrying somebody else during those those 10 years. He has a a hard, hard time, doesn't he? Let's see if we can uh, track with it. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Samuel chapter 24, if that's where you want to go ahead and turn. Uh, But I want to get the next few chapters under our belt real quick. When David leaves Saul, uh, none of this will be on the scripture, but uh, on the screens, but in chapter 21, David has just left Saul. And the first thing he does is he runs to a a priest in the city of Nob, N-O-B. It's probably pronounced Nov, uh, just like a Hebrew sounding uh, pronunciation. But I like the idea, like I went to the, I went to Nob and there's like the Nob. Creek and there's the knob tree, but uh, he goes to knob and there's this uh, priest named Ahimelech and uh, he says, "Hey, uh, the king has sent me on a on a mission." He did, he lies about running from the king. He lies that the king tried to kill him. He says the king sent me on a secret mission. I, I couldn't get anything to eat. Can I eat something? And the priest says, "I don't have any food. I'm, I'm all out. The only food I have is over here. It's the it's the showbread. The the bread of the presence is what is in some of your translations. You, you and I, uh, anybody Jewish." Like you know, you know the Old Testament well. Well, for the rest of us, we don't know that that you don't eat the showbread. But if you know Jewish history, if you know Jewish law, the showbread is only for God and the priests. 
And so the priest says, I don't have anything except the showbread. And it's against the law for anybody to eat it. And David, you know, uh, an officer of the king says, I'm starving. I need you to give me the bread. There's zero question as to whether or not David sinned in that moment. There's no, there's no judgment uh, for it. You don't see the Lord like super angry at him. But Jesus references it later uh, in the New Testament. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, uh, the, the disciples are eating grain out of the fields. And they say, hey, you're not supposed to eat grains on the Sabbath. And Dave, uh, Jesus says, yeah, but you're not mad at David for eating the showbread when he wasn't supposed to eat that. He references it back. So he eats the showbread. Uh, he says, hey, do you have any weapons in this building? Uh, Himalek's like, hey, the only thing we've got is Goliath's sword. Uh, you want that? He's like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> Which is funny because the last person to use it was David himself. He's like, I'll, I'll hang on to that for a while. So now he has a weapon and he leaves uh, the city of Nob. The, the next place he goes, he doesn't know where to go. David doesn't know how, where he's going to go. He goes to a city called Gath. Anybody know who's from Gath? Goliath is from Gath. David flees his home country and he runs to the home city of the person that he killed to Gath. He gets there and he's holding Goliath's sword and he's going to hide in the crowd. Nobody's going to recognize him, right? Except there's a song that's been going around town. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. Some women saw David there and they started singing his song. And now it's getting him in trouble. He can't hide in Gath. And so like, how do I get out of here? Because they're going to kill me. Uh, They're singing a song about me killing their people. How do I get out of here? And so David pretends to be insane. Uh, so, so David has, he's eaten the showbread, which he shouldn't have done. He now has the sword of his enemy. And to get out of the cities, he's dug himself in. He, he, it says that spittle, he let just spittle hang in his beard. That is disgusting, by the way. Uh, as a person with a beard, I'm always conscious, like, do I have soup in my beard? Do I have, like, so he, he let it happen. And he just walked around looking insane. And they're like, this guy's nuts. Get him, get him out of here. And so in chapter 22, he ends up at this cave in Adullam. I don't know where Adulam is. I didn't look it up. But what's interesting is that his family joins him. So all this running, his family hasn't been there, but his dad and his brothers, they join him. Uh, and they get, to hang, they get to spend time with, with David. And Scripture says uh, some other people showed up. And it says in verse 2, if you're looking at it, it won't be on the screens. It says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David, he flees to this cave. He has nobody, but his family shows up. And then all the people who are bitter in soul, all the people who are really angry with how the, the country is running right now, all the people who are in debt to the king, they just gather. He gets, he gets broken, indigent people who are angry at the system, angry at how the world is going. And now he has 400 people that are just kind of supporting him. David, we, we've got your back, whatever you need. These are not trained warriors. These are not, uh, you know, some commando or some kind of militia group. He just, he just gets a group of people who are broken and hurt, uh, and he becomes commander over them. Now, the way Samuel writes this, uh, he, he switches gears, and now he tells us what happened in Nob. So the priest in Nob had helped David, and Saul heard that David had gone through there, and he goes, he says, hey, who, who, who came through here? Who'd you help? And the priest uh, says, well, David, you sent David through here, right? No, David is running from me. David, David is a criminal. Why did you help him? And the priest says, I thought he was on a mission for you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm your servant. I would never do that. And Saul says, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to execute you. I'm going to execute your whole family. I'm going to get your father, your brothers, your mom. I'm going to get everybody. And I'm just going to kill all of you. And so he gathers all of the people together. And he turns to his servants and he says, kill them. And the servants are like, no. 
We will not kill a priest of the Lord. Are you insane? Saul's like, yes, I am insane. Please kill them. No, they, they wouldn't do it. And so there's this guy, his name is Doeg. Doeg is like, hey, king, hey, I got this. You need, you need somebody dead? I'll kill him right now. After you. Doeg slaughters Ahimelech, the priest, slaughters his whole family, slaughters his kids, and in a frenzy turns to the city, slaughters every man, woman, and child, and then the donkeys and the sheep. He just goes through and massacres this entire city. The, the servants of Saul, they wouldn't even touch the priest, and now, you know, they're like, what is happening? This guy is bonkers. Uh, Doeg gets applauded. Saul is like, this is what I'm talking about. This is service. This is what I expect of everybody. Saul is going into full-on crazy mode. So David goes to the city of Keilah. Uh, Keilah is under siege from the Philistines, so he's running, but somebody's got to do something. i got these 400 men. I'm going to rescue them from the Philistines. Uh, he goes and he rescues them, and then he remembers the last city that helped me, uh, Saul slaughtered. So he prays. He's like, what, what do I do? Uh, God, should they give me over? And God says, yeah, they should turn you over. And so David tells this, the people in the city of Keilah, he says, he says just listen, tell him that, that I, I did this against your will and tell them where I went. I'm just going to leave. And I left. And then Saul shows up later. He's like, hey, did you help David? No, he, he left. He went that way. Save, David saves the city by putting himself in danger. It's fascinating to me. He doesn't say, hey, keep me a secret, whatever. Uh, our, our recap, our montage, if you will, ends with David is in hot pursuit, or excuse me, Saul is in hot pursuit of David. David is running through the wilderness and they come to this mountain that doesn't have a name yet. And David goes left and Saul, for whatever reason, he's like, I don't know which way you went, left or right. I'm going to go right. And as they're going around this mountain, Saul is just a, a beat away from catching up to David and killing him. And then he gets word that the Philistines are attacking behind him. And so at the, they're separated. Like, like think of a movie where there's just a little wall between them, and they don't know both of them are about to run into each other. Saul and his army turns around and goes, David may not even know how close he was to dying. And they call it the rock of escape because this rock, this mountain, helped David escape. And he ends up in this place called En Gedi, which is where I want to begin today. En Gedi is a beautiful place, but it's in an ugly place. Do you guys know where the Dead Sea Basin is? Have you seen this? Can we bring that up right here? This is a Dead Sea Basin. Uh, that bluish area in the back is water. Uh, it is uh, full of salt. Real quick, let me see if I can get the data on that water. Uh, I have it here. It's something like 34%. There it is, 34.2% salt. It is more than one-third salt uh, in, in the Dead Sea. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea, and it's 9.6 times saltier than the ocean. That's how salty this place is. It is the, the Dead Sea Basin, that land, is the lowest uh, land uh, in the world. It is sitting at um, 1,412 feet below sea level. So we're in Southeast Texas. You know how far we are from sea level? Like four feet, okay? We're like four feet from sea level. The, the bottom of that desert is 1,400 feet lower than we are right now. You follow that? Uh, it is barren. There are, are no plants. There's no wildlife. There is nothing. It has these very high cliffs on the side. Uh, can we go to the next slide, please? Uh, here is, uh, this area is called Masada. It's, it's like a, 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 just a basic mountain. Look how steep these cliffs are right here. This mountain is, is just, just sticks up in the middle of the Dead Sea Basin. Uh, it's been used for battles. Uh, multiple centuries of people uh, uh, put, put like a, a, a fortress on the top of that because you can't attack the thing. It's, it's a thousand feet in the air and you can't attack it. 
Uh, these cliffs are approximately 1,300 feet tall, but look how, look how vertical it is. So the Dead Sea Basin is basically this, this area of ground that is cut out at 1,300 feet of just nearly completely vertical cliffs, and David is running through that. But he ends up at this place called En Gedi. Can you go to the next slide, please? En Gedi is this area where the, the, the cliff walls are near vegetation, and they have like a river, and it drops into the Dead Sea Basin, and it kind of flows out until it just evaporates because of the, the climate. But in En Gedi, it's this little valley between the cliffs. It's like a little V. Uh, is all this greenery and all this jungle. It is absolutely beautiful. When I was in college, uh, freshman in college, or excuse me, uh, a senior in college, uh, we got to go to Israel and to hike En Gedi. It's about 300 yards or so into this little V. Uh, uh, you go around, you look at some, some uh, waterfalls, there's like goats, there's just, it's, it's teeming with life. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It makes for a great hike. But at your back is utter wasteland, utter death. Like think, think about standing on Masada. You're 1,300 feet in the air. You can look and see the horizon for dozens, 20, 30 miles in any direction. You see any enemy coming. And if you have to hide... You have these cliffs with waterfalls and caves. Go, go to the next one, please. You, you, can, you can just duck out anywhere. Look how beautiful that is. When, when, when you are looking at the Dead Sea and you're hiding for your life, you're going to spend a few nights, days, months in this area. You just, you're going to eat a goat every now and then. You're going to drink some water. David has found his way to En Gedi while Saul is gone. and he's just, He just sits there for a while. He hides out because it's a place that he can sustain himself. But Saul is back on the hunt. So let's, let's look at together uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. It says, um, when, when Saul uh, returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Uh, when Saul took, uh, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks, which is the entrance to En Gedi. Uh, he has 3,000 men. David has 400 men. That's a little bit of overkill. Can we agree? Yeah. Uh, it's also uh, noteworthy to say that, that Saul is just, he just finished a war with the Philistines and someone's like, hey, behold, uh, your enemy the one you've been hunting after, go, go check him out. Uh, Saul, you'll find as we read more of this, Saul has an endless supply of people who are pointing him to do danger in somebody else. They, were, they would use his anger and his mental health as a weapon to point him out because as long as you keep the king distracted, you have a little bit of power, you have a little bit of influence. Uh, I think Saul wouldn't have gone had he did not had those people around. Verse 3, And he came to the sheepfolds, uh, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, I don't have to get super graphic on this, do I? But uh, you're wandering around the wilderness. There's not a lot of porta potties around. Uh, you have 4,000 men with you, and you're just like, there's a cave. It's like a quick bathroom break. You guys hang out out here. I'm going to just go use the restroom real quick. And he, he goes in to relieve himself in the cave. What he doesn't know is he chooses, out of all the caves to choose from, he chooses the cave that David and his 400 men are hiding way, way, way back in the back. Saul has just stepped into the most vulnerable position he could be in against the guy that he's been trying to kill for the last two or three years at this point, maybe more. And it says in verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
hey, David, this is the day that God promised you. You get to kill Saul. Remember that promise? Uh, anybody remember where God promised David that? It's funny because sometimes we read things like that and we're like, oh, I'm sure God promised that at some point, and then we move on. God never promised that to David. David is surrounded by people who are looking at the situation that he's in. He's like, hey, I think this is a sign from God. I think, I think the Lord wants you to do this thing right here. You can tell by the way that it is. Look at him over there, just minding his own business. You can't get him. He, he wouldn't even look at you. He, he wouldn't even know. You, you and I, uh, we, when we go through situations that David uh, is going to similar situations where it's just chaotic and you're, you're reaching for hope, uh, you also have people who they will tell you like, look, just do you think God wants you to do this? I think, I think what God wants you to do is X, Y, Z. And in your heart, you know, that's not God. But boy, it would be nice if it, God did say that, huh? Wouldn't it be nice if God would just like, I want you to go slash her tires right now. And you're just like, oh, got to do what the Lord said. <laughs> like, it feels good to do these things. You know, with, with David, uh, Saul has no witnesses. Think about that. Saul, Saul has nobody in there to know how this went in. They could all come out and say, you know, Saul walked in and he jumped on David. David was just defending himself. He could have had them say anything he wanted. He has all the deniability he could want. He has a group of people that would support him to say anything that he needs them to say. And they're already feeding him the line. This is what God wants you to do. Just kill him. Just get rid of it. It says... Um, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I, I like that. So he sneaks up. He gets close enough to Saul to cut a corner of his robe off. But afterward, it says David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Have you ever, have you ever been in your flesh a little bit? I, I'm going to talk to you Christians for a second. Uh, you, you, you're really mad at somebody and you got like a little, like a little jab in on them. Like you, they said something and you're like, yeah, well, your face is ugly too. And you said it in a public setting and like you felt really like good about it at first, but then like the Lord talks to you later. It's like, you shouldn't have said that. Right? Anybody? No? Am I the only one who like gets a little? Okay. Well, uh, me and David, uh, we, we would have cut this dude's robe off, but, he immediately, he's struck in the heart because, because he's done something that he knows the Lord wouldn't have been pleased with. He feels a little conviction, a little guilt. And it says in verse 6, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Um, real quick, and, and up here you can't see it, uh, but you see how it says lowercase l, Lord, and then capital Lord? If you're reading in your Bible, you may notice that it's capital Lord with all caps, L with like a capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, that is code for just the name Yahweh. Okay, So what David just said is, uh, he said to me, Yahweh forbids that I should do this thing to my Lord, which is the king, because uh, he's Yahweh's anointed. He's saying, God chose this man. I should not have done this against him. So David persuaded his men with these words. When, when David stood up for what he knew was right, the 400 men behind him who would have done anything for him were persuaded. Um, when you go through your situations in life and you're at the, the cusp of you go left and it's terrible sin, but it might feel a little good at the moment, or right, and it's that, it's that heartbreaking obedience where you know it's the right thing to do, but you just, you just suck it up and swallow it, uh, you may or may not have 400 people behind you that are persuaded by your obedience and your influence. That's what happened to David. He did not permit them to attack Saul, and Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Saul didn't know anything had happened. He just gets up and he walks out. At this moment, David could just sit quietly, right? And make for a boring sermon. But just think, he just, he just sits back down. He's like, shh, shh, shh. 
He's going on his way. He's going to search every cave. He's not going to come back to this cave. This is the bathroom cave. He's not going to come back to the bathroom cave. He would never come back in here. So if we just sit here long enough, Saul will just leave. He could have just stayed quietly. Uh, he could have walked out. Uh, David instead, uh, he, he takes a kind of a courageous move. He's going to step out of the cave. In doing so, could really cost him his life. In that moment, there are, how many men was it? 4,000? 4,000 men. Saul could just say, hey, get him. They could just like stand a thousand people at the door. He can't get out and the other 3,000 person. He could kill them like that. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. Hey, king! He's just like, he's getting on his horse to ride away. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Why are you listening to these people? He said, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I'm not going to tell you who it was. Bill over here said, Kill you. I wouldn't do it. I just, I won't, I won't do it. I spared your life, King. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and take it. You've been hunting for me. Look what I did to you. And he holds up like the corner of the robe. I I could have cut off a corner of your ear. I could have cut off a corner of your foot. I only cut off a corner of your robe, Saul. You're hunting me. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? He's looking at this whole army. He's like, what are you after? I'm just one guy, and you've got 4,000 people hunting me. Uh, I'm going to let the Lord just choose right now. Line in the sand. God, uh, you, you figure out who's right, who's wrong. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see, it, uh, see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David uh, is essentially, he's done running. He wants to be done running. Uh, he's done fighting this fight and he wants it to be over. He shows a great mercy to the king, to his enemy, um, but, then, but then he takes his life in his hands in the life of all the people who are following him, and says, I could, I could have done X, Y, and Z, but, but I didn't. Uh, I tell you what, I'm just going to let the Lord choose right now. When, when's the last time Saul has listened to the Lord? When, when's the last time Saul was like, you know what? I'm going to do what God wants me to do. No, Saul is in this mess because every time God told him to do one thing, he's like, I'm going the other way. I'm going to do this other thing. David, uh, David has an incredible amount of faith in his God at this moment. Would you agree? You know, um, here's, here's, I think of situations in my life where, where things did not make any sense at all. Uh, I couldn't figure out what my next step was supposed to be. I couldn't figure out where, where I was supposed to go or who I was supposed to trust. I think, I think of those really hard seasons in my life. Maybe you have some similar seasons. Did you have faith in God that David has in this moment to just bear it all and say, I'm just, God, I'm going to let you figure this out. I can't. I can't sort out this problem with my enemy. I don't know how to fix Saul. I'm not going to kill him. I know I'm not going to do that. And if I'm not going to kill him, then I have no power here. I'm just, I'm stuck. You've been in a mess at work. You ever been in a mess with your family where it's like, there is no way for you to win by your own power. Only God can do it. And you're just like, God, I just, please, will you help me? Will you, will you accomplish whatever you want to accomplish in this moment? That's what he does. 
He stands out there. In verse 16, he says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice? My son David, my son David. Are you kidding me? Golly. You, you, you almost have to understand Saul's mental illness at this point to just know how quickly he goes from 4,000 men sent to hunt and murder this kid to, oh, you're my son again. I'm so sorry. It's a lot of, a lot of whiplashy moments. It says, and Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. This moment touched Saul. This moment where, where David showed kindness to his enemy, forgiveness maybe even, um, certainly admitted weakness, it hits Saul right in the fields and he, he weeps. 4,000 men ready to kill on his command are watching their king sob at the sight of the man that they were sent to hunt. What does this do to a person? What does this do to his army? It, the, the Lord's ability to dismantle all the momentum of a thing going evil in just this one beat, in this one moment, is extremely powerful. In, in your life, uh, everything is coming up against you. All the momentum is like, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your family. It's going to destroy your well-being. There's nothing that can occur to stop this. 4,000 enemy soldiers are at your front door, ready to change your life for the worst. And the Lord just steps in, and in one beat, the king sobs, and the men are disarmed. That's how our God works. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. He says this in front of an audience, by the way. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will, let, uh, will he let him go away safely? Saul's like, this doesn't make any sense. You caught me. You could have finished this, and you didn't. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is the first time out of Saul's lips that he, he admits what his greatest fear was. His greatest fear was is that David is going to take the kingdom. And now he looks at David and says, you are going to take the kingdom. You are going to be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He says, you're going to be the next king and you're going to do a good job. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Probably went up to Masada, by the way. Um, he says, swear to me you're not going to kill my kids and wipe my name off the map. Will you do that? And David's like, I, I had no intention to kill you or your kids. I'm friends with your son. I, I, I won't wipe your name off the map. So Saul turns, takes his 4,000 soldiers, goes home. David does not go back into the toxic environment. David maintains the healthy boundary that separated him from the man who's always a little unstable, uh, and he goes up and hides. This is a powerful story, guys. David could have ended it all, and nobody would have faulted him. You would never even know. They would have never recorded it. But David trusted the Lord. David said, God, you judge this. You, you, you fix this. It's yours to do. And in the beat of a moment, the Lord changed the momentum of 4,000 men that was rising up against David. And we get to, we get to read about it. So here's my question. Uh, this, I think this is a valid question. And don't be too quick to answer it because we have like a Christian answer we want to give to this. The question that I want to ask is, was God good to David? We, we have roughly six or seven years of David running and hiding from Saul. We have a ton of energy where, where David doesn't know what's going on. Was God good to David in that moment? 
Did David seek to become king? No, God chose him to become king. Was God being good to David in that moment? Because, because you know, you know what your friends would say, man, your God is rough. Oh man, it, 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 maybe God didn't ask you to do all those things. God asked David to do all those things. And he spent a long time in circumstances that were not awesome. So the question is, was God good to David? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, God was good to David. Not because it's a Christian answer, but because you see David uh, having, having faith in his God and his God overcoming. More than that, we also have an insight to what David was thinking during these moments. See, David writes at least three psalms while hiding in the caves of En Gedi. Think, think about that. Psalms are songs. Psalms are, are like journal entries. These are like prayer journal entries of David while he's sitting in the caves of En Gedi waiting for this moment to come. Was, was he like questioning God's motivation at this moment? Was he in, 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 that, in the quietness when nobody is saying anything, does he say, God, what have you gotten me into? I'm so scared right now. I don't, I don't know what to do. Was God good to David? Because if the answer is yes, and I think it is, then your circumstances, whatever you go through now or what you will go through in the future, ever you can have 4,000 men sitting at your front door ready to do you harm. They do not indicate whether or not God is being good or faithful to you. God is faithful through all of these 10 years that David was running and hiding. Uh, Psalm uh, 57, 63, and 142 are the, the ones that uh, are very obviously written from the cave in Engedi. Uh, you know that because David wrote at the top uh, a psalm uh, while sitting in the cave in Engedi. And so uh, you don't have to guess. I like to believe that Psalm 23 was also written in Engedi, but other people disagree with me, so you know, have that. Here, here's Psalm 142. Just listen to it. It won't be on the screens. It's a, a mascal or a song of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. David wrote those words as well. With my voice, I cry out to, to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. He's just like, I'm, just, I'm telling you all my problems, God. I'm just I'm talking to you. He says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. When I am collapsing, you know the next thing for me to do, God. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Everywhere I go, they're like, I come around this corner, there's Saul's people. They're setting traps for me. They, they want me to fail, God. I look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. Think, think of David sitting at the entrance of En Gedi. He can see 30 miles to the horizon, wherever how far it is. I don't know how far it is. He's like, there's nobody coming. I have no help in all of this area. He says, he says, Everywhere I look, to the right, there's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. But then he says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. See, in David's own like prayer life, he's just telling God, I am terrified and I have no help. The only help I have is you. Will you rescue me? And in the beat of one moment, God rescued him. Probably happened a week later, a month later. I, I want to encourage you, whenever you go through those seasons of your life, I want to encourage you to stay faithful to your God. And you look around and you're like, there's nobody here to help me. I have no refuge. The Lord is your refuge. 
No one hears my cries. No one understands my pleas. The Lord understands your pleas, and the Lord hears your cries. You are not forgotten. You are not left alone. God has not failed in any promises, and your circumstances do not reflect his faithfulness. The Lord stayed faithful to David, and in the beat of one moment, he changed the momentum where nothing else seemed to be able to, and he can do the same for you. Our faithfulness in God is that he has been faithful every time he's made a promise. And his promise to you is that he will not leave his work incomplete. He will see you through to completion. I need to quickly land the plane. So uh, just a couple of thoughts real quick uh, on David. Uh, Just a lesson from David is that David trusted the Lord when nothing else really seemed trustworthy. The men were telling him things that weren't true. Saul is spreading lies. There's propaganda against him everywhere he goes. It just doesn't seem trustworthy. But, But he trusted the Lord when nothing else made sense. He stayed the course despite strong influence to abandon his convictions. Everybody around him was saying, do this other thing. Nobody will care. But David stayed the course. David showed love to his enemy and literally risked his life and others doing it. He didn't didn't have to tell Saul that he forgave him. He, He could have just kept it a secret, but he risked everything to tell him. And so the two questions I want to ask and close with is this. Where is the Lord calling you to trust his way? Right, right now, your, your life is whatever areas of chaos and turmoil that lives tend to get in. Where is the Lord telling you, hey, trust, trust my way on this? It doesn't make sense. There's 4,000 versus 400. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, just, just trust me, God says. But, but I, need to, I, need to, I need to cancel out, you know, I need to, I need to uh, cash out my retirement. Yeah, the Lord says, just trust me on this instead. Uh, but this job over here seems so much better. I just have no peace on it. But everybody says that, like, I'm going to be so much better. The Lord says, just trust me. Where is God telling you to trust him? And then the flip of it is, because David had those 400 men uh, with all the noise that they can make, what are your sources of noise that are discouraging you from trusting him? Maybe they mean well. They, they don't trust the Lord like you do. They don't have faith in the same God you do. They have more faith in their own skill, their own, their own wit, uh, their own way of looking at the world. And they say, hey, trust that, trust trust." No, no, I'm, I'm encouraging you, like David, in all the chaos, to trust the Lord. Show kindness to enemies. Love your enemy. It's for seasons like David is in that verses like that were written. It's not for seasons where you're the strongest man on the block, love your enemies. No, no, no. It's when you're in the cave and somebody's you know, using the restroom. <laughs> you, 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 you love your enemy. You protect them when they're absolutely weak and vulnerable. I'm four minutes over. Apologies. I love you guys. I'm going to pray. Uh, that's the end of the sermon, uh, by the way. Uh, we, we, ha- we have a lot to learn uh, from David, and um, I'm just thankful for that story. Let me pray. Father, um, your ways are better than our ways. Uh, there's a lot of things that seem to make sense to us, but that's usually the time that we get ourselves in trouble. Uh, Father, help us to trust your ways over our ways. Help us to, to not lean on our own understanding, our own understanding of our circumstances, our own understanding of what would work better. Uh, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to find our refuge in you. And when the world looks like it's rising up against us, just Lord, help us trust you because in, in just the motion of your hand and a single word from your mouth, Father, you, you can turn the momentum of anything you want. Um, may, we, may we grow in our trust of you. Uh, and persuade others to do the same. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.